0: Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode. Today, we have a really special interview that Eva did with Professor Laura Piddock, a name that I'm sure many of you recognize, on the 27th of October of this year. Hope you enjoy.
0: I'm really, really happy to have Laura Piddock with us here today. She has been a very well-known person in the AMR community, and I'm thrilled to learn her experience and, and her insights in this topic. Laura, could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Yes, I'm Laura Piddock. I'm Scientific Director at the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, (GARDP), And I lead two programs, the Discovery and Exploratory Research Programme, and also the scientific affairs program, which includes all sorts of outreach and communications, including revived webinars. And I'm a member of the GARDPI policy and advocacy group. I'm also professor of microbiology at the University of Birmingham, UK, although that is a much smaller role now and has been for a couple of years. So I, I still have a small research team there. Uh, but I suspect many of your listeners will know I me mean, from my research career. But I've been with Guard P now for uh, since January 2018.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's start a bit in the in the beginning. That role that maybe now is not so prominent in your day to day work, but is what actually brought you to amr related questions. Can you tell us a little bit how did your career started and when did you started to get an interest on amr related issues?
2: So I did a PhD in a hospital, and it was on the mechanism of action of Penicillin type molecules, beta lactams, against Bacteroides fragilis and other Bacteroides species. And that was because we just started to understand in the previous decade how beta lactams worked. And Brian Spratt had done seminal work to identify penicillin binding proteins as the target. But we didn't really know much about the target other than E. coli and Snaforia. So my work was on Bacteroides. These are bacteria that live in the gut and uh, can cause uh, intra-abdominal infections and abscesses and particularly post-operative infections. So uh, that's what my PhD was on and uh, I I got that in three years Uh, and it was great working in a clinical environment, working alongside people doing phase one projects, you know, looking at pharmacokinetics of new drugs in healthy volunteers as well as doing preclinical research. So not only was I able to do basic research, I was working within this group of people doing much more applied and clinical research. Then I was very lucky. I was invited to stay on and start developing work on drug resistance. Because if you think about it as a coin, one side is mode of action and the other side is mode of resistance. So we started working on um, beta-lactamases at that time because beta-lactamases had been a real problem for me when I was doing my penicillin-binding protein assays because bacteroides produce these enzymes and they chewed up the radioactive penicillin that I was using to label the proteins. So I'd had to uh, do quite a lot of work to get around the beta-lactamases. So then I worked on beta-lactamases and this led me into working on um, permeability and ultimately multidrug efflux.
0: So uh, is bacteroides uh, naturally resistant to beta-lactams? Many beta-lactams,
2: yes, because they produce these beta-lactamases, but not all. And that was the, the question at the time. Why are bacteroides resistant to some and not all? And the answer was some some of them aren't very good at interacting with the penicillin binding proteins, but much more often it was the presence of a beta-lactamase. And of course, we're talking about drugs that were around in the 1980s. And, not the drugs that were developed after that time. So it was a really good grounding for me because it's very exciting with lots of new drugs being discovered and developed and you know a lot of new understanding about mechanisms of resistance. And so I was doing my PhD and my early postdoctoral research um, at a time when there's a lot of exciting new research done by lots of different people. And of course, there wasn't the internet then which meant that there wasn't a huge avalanche of information every single week. You're able to read the publications, really understand them, carefully dissect what it meant for your own research, and then take it on board and change your own experiments and develop and evolve your own work much more carefully, I think, than sometimes young researchers get the time to do now, because there's so much information. They've got to read it, work out which is relevant, and then apply it to their own research. So I stayed at the hospital in the end for five years, and then I got a fellowship set my own research team up. And that's when I first moved to University of Birmingham Medical School. And then I got my tenured position five years after that. And so
0: I stayed on at the university. If I might ask you that's a curious question, because you work with different mechanisms of resistance, uh, which mechanism of resistance do you find more interesting, scientifically speaking? And also, which one do you think is most relevant to really be understood and to be worked with?
2: It's actually quite a difficult question to answer, because interesting in terms of clinical relevance is one thing. So obviously beta-lactamases spread worldwide are hugely impacting on the clinical effectiveness of drugs. But then scientifically interesting for me, I actually stopped my research on beta-lactamases quite a long time ago because I felt that others were, there were many other groups working on it and that the, I became much more interested in permeability and multi-drug efflux and spent probably the last 20 years my team's research has been on multi-drug efflux, in the main, not exclusively. We've done other stuff on plasmid-mediated resistance, but trying to understand the relationships between uh, multi-drug efflux and clinically relevant resistance. So, what I mean by that is, you know, not just where the bacterium becomes less susceptible to an antibiotic or even a, another type of antimicrobial in the test tube. Clinically relevant is where that resistance is such that if that caused an infection in a patient, it would no longer be treatable. So using breakpoint concentrations as recommended by UCAS, for instance, or CLIS, because many of the uh, research articles you see published, they talk about resistance. When you actually look at the values, they are under the recommended breakpoint value. So we do have... a um, a dichotomy sometimes between the basic research community and the clinical microbiology community when they're talking about resistance. They're not always talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I got into multidrug efflux, some of the MIC values that you see increased when you've got enhanced efflux, overproduction of an efflux pump, for instance, um, may not give clinically relevant levels of resistance to all of the drugs. But some of them, mm-hmm. and the some of them may well be drug like ciprofloxin or fluoroquinolone, which of course is used very widely throughout the world, still is today. So that was clinically relevant resistance, whereas some of the other MIC values for other drugs weren't clinically relevant. But it's still, it, we call them multi-drug resistance because the whole, you know, in one single step, you get these increased MIC values to usually at least 10 substrates so a big you know change to the bacterium. whereas with a beta-lactamase um you find that they, they will only give resistance to beta-lactam drugs whereas multi-drug efflux pumps give resistance to different drugs of different chemical classes
0: mm-hmm. it's more like a it's a Perhaps less strong of effect, but it could potentially affect many more things that we would use for for clinical treatment of infections. Yeah,
2: and of course, work done by my team and others showed that these multi-drug efflux pumps don't work in isolation. So what you find is the the factors in the bacterial cell that regulate how much of an efflux pump is produced. And those are things that change in a resistant strain where you get overproduction that's permanently turned on you find that the bacterium, by the same factor turns off or down regulates the amount of drug that can get into the cell so it's you know closing the the doors and windows at the same time is increasing vacuuming out of the cell <laughs> so the two work together and then we found that if you inactivate uh, an efflux pump gene or make it loss of function, so the protein's there, it doesn't work anymore, that some other completely unrelated drug resistance mechanisms don't confer clinically relevant levels of resistance anymore. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
2: what's happened is the bacterium is retaining so much drug within the cell, the concentration is so high, it's able to overpower that other drug resistance mechanism. So, for instance, fluorphenicol resistance in salmonella. So, is it really important to recognize that drug resistance mechanisms don't always work in isolation? They work together. Mm-hmm. And when we measure MIC value, it's the totality of what gets into the cell, what is not inactivated, and what is not pumped
0: out. It's a, a complex puzzle of different, different parts is. that results in either the cell living or the cell dying. So yes, very interesting work. If we move now towards um, later in your career and your involvement into GARP as well, we had Manika recently being interviewed at the podcast as well. What led you to join their cause and what are the main things that you do with them?
2: Obviously, I, I set up my research team at the university in the late 1980s, going into the 1990s. And my work very much moved into... Much more basic research away from the applied research by the end of the 1990s. And because of the work we've been doing on fluoroquinolone resistance in Salmonella and in Kampala bats, I'd got very interested in foodborne disease via the animal route and via the water route and from birds and whatever. And so we did quite a lot of work on that. And that led to me becoming an expert for the World Health Organization for a few years at the late 90s. And then in the early 2000s, I became one of the expert scientists on the UK Food Standards Agency Advisory Committee for the Microbiological Safety of Food. And through that, I ended up becoming the president of the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy and also going on the Immunity and Infection Board of the UK Medical Research Council. Started doing lots of other external things as well as my research and obviously teaching undergraduates and postgrads and all of that. And so by the end of the 2000s, probably about 2010, um, I got involved with quite a lot of policy work, started doing more media work. I'd actually done a few documentaries with the BBC in the 1990s about drug resistance in foodborne bacteria, but hadn't gone that route very much. But by the end of the first decade, 2000, 2010, I really ended up doing quite a lot of policy work and working with groups. and. With BSAC, we launched the House of Commons and the House of Parliament in London, the all-party parliamentary group on antibiotics and an awareness campaign called Antibiotic Action. And through that, that brought me to contact with lots of different people. Kevin Outison, who's now with Carbex, Ramanan Laxminarayan from CDEP, Otto Cars from React. We all started communicating and interacting and supporting each other in our work Worked with alongside uh, various people advising Sally Davis as, as an external ad hoc advisor, not formally, helped write the first report for the World Economic Forum on Drug Resistance in 2013, and then was an expert advisor to Jim O'Neill's AMR review. Mm-hmm. So all of that alongside my research was, you know, my work was starting to evolve. So by the time I got to sort of 2013, 2014, I'd really turned my research. In a way to say, well, what of the basic research that I'm doing and others are doing? What can I build on with multi-drug efflux? Perhaps go back to where I'd started my career on drug discovery and early development. So I was very fortunate; I got substantial funding to start investigating efflux inhibitors using a new tool that we'd uh, developed in my team based on some of our basic research. So that factor that I told you about that. Um makes drug efflux pumps turn on much higher mm-hmm. We realized that if we fluorescently labeled it, we found it was sensitive to efflux inhibition, so I then thought, well, I think we could try and use that into a drug discovery mm-hmm. tool. We did that, and we have some novel efflux inhibitors. So I turned it all around, and so when I was approached in twenty seventeen to go and work at Guard P, I realized that. If I didn't take that role on, I'd regret it. Mm -hmm. And that was the motivation. I felt it was an opportunity that should not be missed. And, of course, GARP was only a year, two years old at that time. Very few people, about a dozen people working there. And 2018 was the year that the rapid growth and activities of GARP really took off. And I was very lucky to be offered that post while also keeping my university post. So I had the two in tandem for a long time. So I was extraordinarily fortunate to bring all strands of my career suddenly together in the job I'm now doing at Garp.
0: That's that's wonderful. That's a, such a inspiring and lovely story how you were able to go back almost to the beginning and to do something that is incredibly needed and and important in this day and time that we're living in today. I have to say that it's it's really amazing to see all the things that you have done and how important and crucially you've been in, in the specific times that it was needed, you know, with the O'Neill report and then all the work that is based on the policy advisory as well by the time that things were moving a little bit, you know, faster and being in the forefront of how important this is globally as well. So you've been a key factor there in all these uh, Positions, so it's uh, wonderful to hear from from you directly. Um, now you have established, you know, the work that you do with GARPI. You said you're also working with the scientific affairs part, which has to do a lot of, with communication. Which uh, I guess you perhaps agree with me that that's a part that we have to put a lot of effort and that perhaps has been lacking at the beginning of realizing that you know drug resistance was gonna be a really important global health issue. There was a lot of talk between you know uh, scientists and people working in the area but there is the other part which is we need to bring awareness to the people that can make the changes like for example all the politicians and the people that can make laws about it how have you seen that change happening and where do you think that's going so public awareness is a again
2: very multi-leveled approach to take because what do we mean when we talk about public awareness or public engagement So the work we do at GuardP is very much focused, the scientific affairs team, on scientific communication, outreach and engagement, and particularly for the research and development of new treatments for infections. So if you look at all the activities we do, whether it's the revive webinars or the AMR discussions, which tend to be more sort of, there's no consensus on a topic, so people can just come together and discuss it. Or whether we, it's the Antimicrobial Chemotherapy Conference that we do with the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. They're targeting that audience in the main. The work that I've done outside of that, and certainly predating Garbka, I don't really do very much now due to time constraints. Uh, I did a lot of TV work. I did a lot of science festivals and book festivals couple of music festivals, um, Mm -hmm. school outreach. I wasn't alone in doing it. You know, new scientists do a conference, for instance. And that was really useful. But the one thing I really learned when we were doing outreach to non-scientists was, first of all, you have to be very careful with the, the words that you use. It's very easy to use scientific terms or to use medical terms which a lot of people don't understand. And of course, if we bring it to the last 18 months with the COVID pandemic, this has been the problem with a lot of the communications globally, particularly with so-called scientific experts. And I say so-called because not all of them are scientific experts, and that's another controversy. But for us in the field of antimicrobial resistance, whether we're talking about antibacterials or antivirals or you know, whatever the microbe is, we have to use our words carefully. The other thing we have to do is decide when we're talking to lay people is what is the one message I want to get over today? And you basically repeat it, you know, in a variety of ways. You don't keep saying the same phrase over and over mm-hmm. again, but you, you, you really want to reinforce that message. And then finally, what I learned, and BSAC have very much gone forward with it, is who do you feel you need to educate? Because it's not just telling people, it's bringing them in so they're sufficiently interested they want to know more. And children were clearly the way forward because children become adults. Children also talk at home and convince their parents. And I'm a, a true supporter of helping children to understand science. Because if you get people young enough and they're interested, actually they carry that forward for life. Mm So, outreach to children, I believe, is actually more important in many ways than to adults, because it's very hard to get adults to change their beliefs and opinions. Because one of the clear things that COVID has shown everyone is, and that scientists do not really take on board and find inexplicable is that. People think that science is a belief in the same way as religion is belief. They cannot recognise that science is fact-based and that the facts evolve over time. We add new facts to the scientific base. And non-scientists find that very hard because mm-hmm. they will say, you said that last month and now you're saying this. So communication and the words we use is really Exceptionally important when you're dealing with non scientists, and that's why for World Antibiotic Awareness Week, there's been recent studies showing that the general public it just misses them, most of the messages miss them. Mm-hmm. And if you look at most of the activities in World Antibiotic Awareness Week, they are aimed at healthcare professionals or scientists in the main. Now, that's fine if that organization has decided that, say, within a hospital. Mm -hmm. They want to focus on prescribing, you know, start smart, then focus, for instance, which is a campaign we had in the UK a number of years ago. But if you want the general public to understand the true value, then we have to think of doing things very differently. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a challenge, right? It is a challenge.
2: It is a challenge because we don't have access to the same figures again, that the people working on COVID do. Mm -hmm. We have daily, weekly figures for most countries, in fact, many countries down to the local city, the local area, of how many patients have COVID or how many people have COVID, how many patients in hospital, how many people are dying. We don't have that for drug resistance. We still have estimates. And although the WHO glass program Mm -hmm. is now capturing mortality data, and that will really help us is nothing like as drilled down as it is for COVID, because of course COVID is a single virus, mm-hmm. maybe variants of it. It's a single virus, antimicrobial resistance, many different drugs, many different bacterial species, and that's before we talk about any other microbes that are drug resistant.
0: Exactly. We've been also talking about the concept of how people understand different fast threat, something that can you know make you sick tomorrow and then you might die from it, maybe within a month or two months, versus a threat that is seen as a long term, perhaps it will happen, resistance is raising, maybe I will get a resistant infection. So what do you think about the way that we communicate how how important or how, how much of a threat it is for, for the people? I always,
2: when I'm doing anything with, with the media in particular, because that's going out often to non-scientists, but if I'm doing, you know, a book festival or something, I would always speak with some of my clinical colleagues in the hospital that our university is associated with and say, how many patients have you got with bloodstream infections at the moment? How many of them have you had to go to second or third line treatment because the first or second hasn't worked? And just get a feel for what's around. I have colleagues in other parts of the country, I would often ask them. So never specifics, but I remember when we launched Antibiotic Action at the uh, and the All-Party Parliamentary Group back in 2011, we launched it on European Antibiotic Awareness Day, 18th of November. My colleague had told me from a hospital in the north of England that they had 11 patients on a ward with bloodstream infections. And six of them, they were not treatable by the first or second line treatment. So... That was okay. That's the United Kingdom. There are plenty of other options, and those patients were treated. But the reality is, is that this is happening all the time. Not to everyone, but it is happening. People with who have recurrent UTIs, they know that their drugs don't always work, i.e. the infection's resistant. They have to go to other choices. Patients with cystic fibrosis, they live with this all the time. They go through multiple rounds of treatment. So, lots of patients are experiencing this already, including in high income countries. So, their morbidity is affected. They will be ill. They might be off work, school, university. Mm-hmm. It impacts their daily life, but it's not necessarily going to kill them because we're rich countries, we have all those options. You go to lower middle income countries that don't have those options. Some of the drugs we take for granted already. Older drugs they don't have access to, the issue there is they're going to die of an infection, whether it's drug resistant or not, because of the reduced access to available Mm treatments. The role of drug resistance is layered on top in certain parts of the world, Mm -hmm. but resistance is here. And I get very angry when people tell me it's a slow moving pandemic. No, it's not. It's a silent pandemic. That's Mm -hmm. why that phrase was coined, because Most of us are completely unaware. We're living with resistance. It's amongst us now.
0: Very true. Very true. Yeah. I think we should uh, somehow try to find a way to make people understand that it's not something that might happen in the future. It's something that is already happening and, and people are suffering from it right now on top yeah. of everything else that's happening around the world. And you know that patients that already have other problems, like clinical problems, like, for example, cancer or some sort of transplants or hard clinical procedures, they are even more at risk of suffering from these uh, resistant infections as well.
2: Yeah, particularly cancer patients. I mean, cancer patients are much more likely to get an infection than, you know, somebody is a healthy individual without cancer. And they are the people who are already impacted by drug resistance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody worries about cancer treatments and people find it very frightening when they get cancer, even though there have been a lot of miraculous advances in treatment. It's still, for many patients, very frightening, very unpleasant long treatment. Layered on top of that, getting an infection which can be drug resistant, and that is often what impacts most upon their health. and. It's only in the last year or so that a lot of cancer communities have really started to embrace that fact and tell their patients. There's an important factor here, though, that a lot of people aren't aware of with public awareness. Hospitals do not want to say they've got this amount of resistance in that amount of patients because it's seen as very bad for the hospital's image. People will say, I don't want to be treated in that centre they have a lot of drug-resistant infections without realising it's not the centre that has the drug-resistant infections, it's the patients. And often the drug-resistant bacteria are within us. They are often within Mm -hmm. our gut, for instance. Um, And we share them in the same way as we share COVID, a different mechanism, but, you know, we share all our, our microbes. So it's really, people need to understand that some of the figures are kept quiet for reasons that you know they don't want to frighten people and prevent them
0: acquiring health care mhm i understand and then the, having those numbers in the shadows is not really doing good in order to make people understand that this is a real nowadays problem yeah, yeah. yeah. we would like to ask you uh, you have a very extensive career in amr you're seeing how the the field has evolved changed it has also gained importance but i'm also wondering what do you think is missing in amr research and i'm gonna extend that question not only amr research but the amr uh, world what do you think is missing and what would you like to see more of
2: oh that's actually quite a hard question so um i'm not going to say funding because every scientist says we need more money for whatever the field although that is always true Mm -hmm. i think as a community we actually need to start thinking very carefully about What are the priorities for the community? So what are the measures of success? What is the measure of success for antimicrobial researchers? So in my particular area, a measure of success would be that you keep the pipeline populated with potential new treatments from discovery onwards. A measure of success is not just getting one or two new drugs developed and approved for use in patients. So another measure of success is, well, make sure those drugs are now available to patients, not just to a few countries. So there's going to be lots of measures of success. So what do we need to do? I think we need to get together and identify what are the measures of success. Do we have as a measure of success measuring how much resistance is around in terms of, you know, there's X percent of E. coli resistant to drug Y or as a measure of success, um, good infection prevention control to minimise the spread of drug resistance. It's all of these things, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think as a community, we need to get our measures of success. We need to develop those better. Mm -hmm. And then then our funding and our activities can help achieve those measures. Mm -hmm. Because I do think a lot of money has been spent in the last 10 years And has it done anything to reduce the incidence of resistance? Has it done anything to uh, increase the number of new drugs for patients? And the answer is yes, sometimes.
0: So somehow finding a way that we can make more for our back, basically. So really have, have clear cut goals and those goals being based on community needs and then try to use the money that we can put in the area to really reach those goals. And that's up to every person in their little corner of the AMR world to, to look at what are those things that we really need, right?
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, at some point um, there needs to be sort of perspective on uh you know what is the prioritization because you know you can only spend your funding once <laughs> and you know when i say prioritization what i mean is priorities evolve mm-hmm. based on new knowledge and i think we have to be very clear that some areas of amr research may not be as great a priority as others and i wouldn't be as so bold as to tell you what my views are on that because they're my views i think you would need a, 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 a Very good expert group to come out with that. But what I can tell you from having been on expert groups like that is that different parts of the world have very different priorities Mm -hmm. and there is no one size that fits all. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: We have to be very clear on that. And our measure of success is not how much money a researcher has acquired to do research or how much money a funder has awarded or how many projects they've funded. Mm -hmm. A measure of success is what is
0: the outcome of all those projects? Yeah, very, very true. Thank you so much for that, that insight. We are sadly running out of time now, but before we sign off, I would like to ask you if there's anything else in particular that you would like to tell our audience. We are a very mixed audience, people working in AMR in very different aspects, people coming into AMR and learning about this topic. Now is your time to tell them anything that you would like to raise awareness or bring up? Two
2: things, really. First of all, antimicrobial research is very, very interesting. So if you're in it already, stay in it. If you're not, do join us. Never turn down an opportunity because that's what has led me to do so many different things in my career. So never think that you can't do something. If you think you regret it by not doing that project or doing that experiment, then you should do it. But thirdly, enjoy what you're doing. Mm -hmm. you know make sure antimicrobial research is interesting and enjoyable and you'll be successful
0: nice yes i think having the motivation to work and i i I do think it's a lovely it's a lovely community to be working in as well because there's a lot of support and there is a lot of uh, feeling that we are all kind of working for the same goal even though that goal as we just said it has many different sub goals that need to be attained but it's like it's one big thing that we are trying to move towards. And it feels really nice to be part of the community in that way. With this, Laura, I thank you so much for being with us. It was lovely to meet you, to hear your story and to be inspired by, by your words. And I wish you the very, very best on the, all the next new opportunities that will come your way that I'm sure you are going to say yes to. Thank you, Laura.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. Bye. Welcome back, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed this interview. Jenny, what are your thoughts about this quite intense overview?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a lot of information in a, in an interview. But also, I mean, knowing about Dr. Piddock from earlier and having heard her talk before, I was still just, again, like, even though I knew this, I was impressed by her uh, resume and, like, her approach to working and everything she's done and how she kind of just ended up in these things. But... Even more then, I was very happy to hear her talking about her opinions on outreach and that the way she sees that, you know, outreach towards children is super important. And that's from somebody who's worked in policy and, you know, outreach awareness and policymakers and the general public and everything like that. It was really great to hear that perspective from somebody who's had that experience that it's still this kind of outreach towards kids has a huge value.
0: Mm-hmm. The impact can be much greater, obviously. Yeah, yeah. it was great to see that comment too.
1: <laughs> there was also, I liked like as somebody who works with uh, looking at resistance mechanisms in bacteria, I really enjoyed her statement that you know resistance mechanisms don't work in isolation. So you can study one resistance mechanism, but it's always dependent on the background. Of in that bacterial strain, and this is like my, my work. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed hearing that. And she talked about, you know, for example, the beta lactamases that break down in antibiotics compared to, are like, together with efflux mechanisms, which are ways that the bacteria pumps antibiotics out of the cell. So, like, these things don't really affect each other, but they combined can have a different effect on the cell, or they can, in some degree, like, it's just it's complicated, and you've got to study it. If you want to get like a more realistic view on it, you've got to study it from this like more complex perspective of how these things interact, while it's still important to understand them individually.
0: Exactly. And it's like resistance is, it's a net result yeah. of everything that is happening inside that cell and all the mechanisms that are at play. And as you was saying, also these efflux systems are very interesting to study because it's not dependent on a particular type of antibiotic. It's just, it's a very basic system, a very basic mechanism on the cell, which allows things to get in or get out. You know, in this case, efflux yeah. out, influx will be in. And it can potentially affect a lot of different antibiotics. And the thing is that maybe for some of the antibiotics, it would be very little effect, but maybe for some other antibiotics it could be a lot of effect and then we will have a problem. And here's when we come to what she was commenting that, resistance can also mean a lot of different things right yeah resistance could be that you are able to not kill a bacteria in a petri dish or resistance could also mean that you are not able to treat a patient successfully and we need to be careful on how we use these different terms right
1: yeah i mean uh, in the bacteriology field where we're really looking at these bacteria we tend to like maybe somewhere in a paper specify oh we're talking about say, a clinical breakpoint, which is a concentration of antibiotic that corresponds to what's perceived as what would cause clinical failure, basically, or um, that's not a perfect definition. But I mean, it's a limit that in a clinical lab, you would call this bacteria resistant and you wouldn't use that antibiotic to treat it. So it's tough when also in basic science, you might also be talking about just decreased susceptibility. So like the bacteria has become more resistant. Mm-hmm. we say it's resistant. It's
0: less sensitive. Yeah. It's
1: less sensitive is maybe the proper term, but it's it all depends on what you're comparing to, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's, and this ties in really well to what Dr. Pidock said about the words we use in outreach, especially towards the general public and how clear it is now, especially in the pandemic, that the words you use are so important, you know? Are we talking about resistance? What kind of resistance are we talking about? Is there a way we can be more simple, clear and concise mm-hmm. in what we say? I think it's useful to think about.
0: I also, I really loved how we kind of ended the interview. Well, apart from being very inspirational and telling people, you know, like just enjoy what you're doing and join us if you feel like there is an interest to you in this field. But her comment on like, it's not just about the money that we have in this area. It's not just about how much money a funder gives or how much money a research group gets. It's about what are we getting out of that money? Can we maybe agree on what things are to be prioritized at a specific moment. And I really like, you know, her. she's a pure scientist. You can feel it yeah. when you when she's talking that, you know, science progresses, science changes, science is fact-based. It's not really a belief. So that means that the priorities also have to change as we get more data, as we understand more how something is, right? And yeah. as she said, maybe there is a need for a specific expert group of sorts that will be able to steer generally what should be studied, what should be put money on, what is a, the things that we want to reach. So it's more of yeah. a solutions-based system of what is it that we want to achieve and then mm-hmm. how do we allocate the resources we have to achieve
1: those goals. And I think that's a very pragmatic approach for somebody, especially somebody that comes from very basic science Uh, background or basic science, but, I mean, a very natural sciences background, I think she has a very pragmatic approach to it of, you know, we have limited resources. Let's not get stuck on the fact that we have limited resources. That is, as it is, it's that way in almost every field. How can we do the most with what we have Mm -hmm. where we can get the most out of it? Mm -hmm. And I think that was really good to see. On a different note, though, I do actually disagree with her a little bit on this... um, silent pandemic versus slow pandemic. And while I totally agree that silent pandemic is a better phrase because it's true, there's still a difference between the kind of pandemic that we're seeing now with COVID and the AMR pandemic. As Dr. Piddock brought up, of course, the numbers aren't really published. Like the hospitals aren't maybe as transparent with how many cases they have, because as she said, maybe patients don't want to go there. You don't want to keep people from healthcare and whatnot. Uh, Well, if everybody was honest and open, then it would be clear that this is an everywhere problem and it's not all from the hospital, of course, Um, but it's still like, even if we were to publish the numbers, the way resistant, like antibiotic resistance works, it's not these, you know, really acute exponential graphs that like, that bring this fear, but I get like understanding of the severity of the situation, Mm -hmm. you know? I think one of those exponential uh, increase in COVID cases graphs is, of course, instills a, a love, like an understanding of the severity of the situation in most people. Mm-hmm. While those numbers just don't look the same for AMR, and it doesn't mean make it less important. It just means that it's different, and we have to approach it differently. And we have to the way we communicate and talk about the severity with people is going to be different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that it's less severe or important is that it's a different kind of pandemic and i think that's yeah. perhaps where we can work more on like that the, the meaning pandemic doesn't have to look exactly the same for all cases or all infectious diseases or all mm. happenings in that, in that regard yeah.
1: yeah or just you know be very considerate about what terms we use and how we describe it so we're not watering down anything but still highlighting the severity of the specific situation that we're talking about
0: mm-hmm. indeed All in all, I mean, I was very uh, thrilled to be talking to her. I have met her in person because she has come to our university to be opponent of some PhD defenses. I don't know if it was before your time, Jenny, but I... No, I was there for one of
1: them. I remember meeting her briefly as well.
0: And she's a terrific scientist, obviously, but she has also done so much work on the important political... Viewpoints on AMR and then her work with Garpi now. As we heard from Manika, what Garpi are doing, and this is more of the scientific affairs thing. It's great, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that she's going to continue doing a lot of great stuff when it comes to AMR. So I can only hope for getting to know more about it as the time comes and and learning from her as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Lovely. uh With that, should we move to the news?
0: Yes, indeed. Let's go talk about new antibiotics, right? We have a lot of new yeah. antibiotics today. Great. See you there. Welcome back. Uh, We are, as as I said, going to go through some pretty antibiotic-heavy articles, pure scientific articles this time. We don't have any report for you. And we chose these two because they kind of bring two different approaches to looking for new anti-infective drugs. Let's just say that, (laughs) anti-infective drugs. Uh, There are two different things and they also have two different approaches. And we think it's really interesting having this forward thinking on how to try to bring new drugs to the market In, in some capacity. So Jenny, can you tell us about this first article we're going to talk about, which is kind of chemistry heavy?
1: very chemistry heavy. I was about to call my dad and ask him if he could explain the chemistry to me. And then I decided it wasn't worth it. Uh, But yeah, this article is called A Synthetic Antibiotic Class Overcoming Bacterial Multidrug Resistance." It was published in the journal Nature on the 27th of October 2021. Basically, in this article, I mean, as the title states, they took an already existing class of antibiotics, linchosomides. In this case, they looked at clindamycin mainly, and then they Instead of like a semi-synthetic approach, so basically starting with a natural product, they went fully synthetic and produced this antibiotic with different systems. And I mean, this is where I, I can't explain the, the the chemistry to you. I wish I could, but they ended up finding basically derivatives of this antibiotic that look a bit like clindamycin. They have the same basic structure, but they're adapted, and they call this class of antibiotics oxazolidinoprolinamides, and then they found that one of these had relatively good antibacterial activity. Using this synthetic process, they found this derivative, eboxymycin, they called it, that they then tested further on different bacterial strains and found that this antibiotic seemed to be circumventing other resistance mechanisms that are common for clindamycin, like the, the underlying basic structure antibiotic. So this one was able to circumvent a lot of that. And interestingly enough, I mean, clindamycin is not particularly effective with gram-negative bacteria. And in this case, it was good at gram-positive, good for gram-negatives, pretty good across the board. Some strains that carried known resistances towards the previous antibiotic class, the clindamycin and lincosamide. this antibiotic didn't seem to have the same issues. It could circumvent these resistances. It was a few things that wasn't effective against pseudomonas, which isn't that strange. Pseudomonas is a really tough bacteria, that's why it's a mm-hmm. problem. But they looked a little bit more into these resistance mechanisms. So these, the main way that these resistance mechanisms work against clindamycin is that they affect like certain amino acids on the target, which is the ribosome in the bacteria. Mm-hmm. This kind of, uh, it's a methylation. It's an alteration of the the target. This kind of alteration didn't affect this antibiotic. It was still functional. Mm-hmm. So that was great. And then they kind of looked at like, in general, it, it has a tighter binding to the ribosome. So that's uh-huh. basically why this is a better structure. They did some in vivo testing as well. And it seems to be, it brings down the bacterial load a lot, which is great. That's what they're looking for. It also didn't appear to be toxic the way they're looking. And it also appeared to be, they could give it orally and it, you know, spread through the systemically. And the main takeaway for me here is that These upsides that I talked about, like the fact that it can kind of circumvent these resistance mechanisms from the previous class, this couldn't be predicted just looking at the structure. So Mm -hmm. the fact that they actually tested it and looked at the ability of the antibiotic to do these things, that's where they found this information. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have known from just predicting, which is something that we use in early work to identify new antibiotics is, you know, predicting structures and predicting things like that. And you have to. There's just too many numbers. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they wouldn't have found this. So I think it's a nice takeaway that like this um, empirical work is so important. You have to test it. You have to look at it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You have to do it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think one thing to mention on here is that, yeah, this class, the one that is based on and the this new class or subclass of, they target the ribosome. And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of antibiotics, very useful antibiotics that we're really using day to day that also have as a target the ribosome, which is Mm -hmm. the part of the cell that makes all the proteins. Basically, without ribosome, there is no living cell. So it's really important and it's a really good word to try to find something that can circumvent those resistant mechanisms in the ribosome. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of antibiotics that completely get useless if we have resistance to them by changes in the ribosome. So finding yeah. something that even though those changes are present in the ribosome, it still works and can target the ribosome and can bind to it. It's its really cool.
1: Yeah. And just the way they came about it, you know, it's...
0: Mm-hmm. I recently learned, actually, I was talking to some chemists and this. Really kind of blows my mind and I still I don't think I fully comprehend it because we were talking about, you know, approaches of how you could, you know, find new antibiotics working in chemistry. And then it just kind of came out that, you know, like the chemical space is basically limitless. So if, if we take away semi-synthesis, which is based on something that already exists and then you have to work on it and it's kind of hard because there are already very big molecules and all yeah. those things that we're talking about. If you rely only on synthesis, which means making little pieces of a bigger molecule, the combinations and the options are infinite, which is yeah. boom, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. potentially there is a lot of things that we could make that will be able to kill bacteria to some degree Mm -hmm. and that we still haven't found yet because as you are saying we are basing our knowledge on things that we already have and then analyzing those structures and understanding how they work and then we're looking for things that work in similar ways but only doing the exploration of making things testing them we can find completely new things that we couldn't predict.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember, actually, I remember your old supervisor talking about this at some point, that there, you know, a lot of early antibiotics are natural products. They come from natural products that are maybe adapted a bit to be better drugs. But after the the golden age of antibiotics, when we found all these natural products that were great, there was so much hope for the synthetics, yeah, fully synthetic antibiotics. But it turned out to be a lot harder to discover these than they thought. So I kind of think this ties into things there i mean it's a synthetically made antibiotic based off a natural product mm-hmm. so you know there's some underlying function there like you mm-hmm. already know a lot of the good you maybe know it's also maybe not that like it doesn't have to be toxic in and of it. but like the actual antibacterial aspect maybe isn't toxic as well mm-hmm. and you're kind of like upping the game like you're increasing your chances a bit there's also, of course, risks. I mean, cross-resistance and everything like that. There's always issues with basing something off something that already exists. Mm-hmm. That's the what was considered the upside was, that, for example, ciprofloxacin, even though, of course, we see lots of ciprofloxacin resistance nowadays. I just think it's a really cool way that they looked at it, and I'm really glad that they were able to find what they found. And again, this example of like, it wasn't predictable, mm-hmm. is it's just a good reminder, you know?
0: This kind of approach of things that are not really predictable by structure, it's also present in the next article that we're going to talk about.
1: Yes. So Eva, how about you tell us about that one?
0: Yeah. So uh, this is uh, an article published in the journal Nature Biomedical Engineering back in 4th of November, and it has as a title, Mining for Encrypted Peptide Antibiotics in the Human Proteome which kind of caught my eye from the very beginning because it's like, oh, human protein, what do they mean by that? Oh, mining, what do they mean by that? And of course, mining now is used nowadays a lot to talk about computational methods because Mm -hmm. it's like really high throughput, analyzing data in huge quantities and trying to get something out of it. So the idea of this paper is that there are a lot of proteins in our body that are doing a lot of different functions, right? There are a lot of different chemicals that go in our blood, move throughout the body, and that have known uses, like it could be hormones, it could be peptides that do some other signaling communication. And the idea is that perhaps within the functions and within the sequence of those already present known proteins, there are mm-hmm. smaller pieces that we will call peptides, so a smaller pieces, not like a full-on protein, that also have a function that has to do potentially with antimicrobial properties, all right? So what they did was to create an algorithm that will look at the whole human proteome, that means all the proteins that are produced from our genome sequences, and look for potential antimicrobial peptides. And antimicrobial peptides are a small amino acid sequences between eight and 50 amino acids, and every amino acid is really the basic building block of a protein. And generally before to uh, look for AMPs, as they call it, antimicrobial peptides, one will look at sequence, trying to find similar things to things that we n- know already how they work. And antimicrobial peptides, they normally work by um, being charged. So they have some sort of charge, net charge in the in the molecule and then that disrupts the bacteria. And that's how before we were looking for AMPs. But these uh, people on this article, they are making a twist on that instead of looking at similarity in sequence what they are looking is what pieces of the human proteome uh, have a particular net charge a particular hydrophobicity and a particular sequence length so these are the three physicochemical properties that they think make an AMP an AMP so they go look at the whole proteome and they see okay which parts of continuous sequence between 8 and 50 amino acids have these scores in these three properties. And from hundreds of thousands of possible, you know, sequences, they found 43,000 candidates for this. And of those, 2,603 have a high score in this net uh, scoring system. And those are predicted peptide antibiotic classes. So that's, a lot of potentiality there, kind of, right? So now the next step is like, okay, what do we do with that? So they were looking first at how are they in sequence? Do they actually look similar to other AMPs that we have known before or are they completely different? And they actually found that the sequence content of those amino acids is slightly different. So um, they don't work exactly the same, probably as the previous AMPs. And they also look where were those actually encoded. And what they found was, Mainly two things. They were encoded into either undescribed encrypted peptides derived from proteins that have different various biological functions already know, or they were encoded in peptide hormones that have already described potative functions, but they had not been described as potentially killing microbes. Right? So this is like completely new. These sequences were not really thought to be part of of anything related with bacteria, but they were doing other things in the body. From this 2000, which is a lot. They yeah. decided to really work with 55, so it's just like a mole subset. They synthesized those 55, and then they did all the subsequent testing on them. They look if they could actually kill pathogens, and they look at the SK classification by the WHO. They also look if they could somehow affect the growth of commensals. And there they found, yeah, both things kind of work. They found some that will actually kill their pathogens and the relevant bacteria, but also they could affect the growth of the commensals. And they explain this as perhaps these peptides are actually there to control the growth of commensals in our body. So they are kind of part of our host immune system of controlling the relationship we have between our body and our microbiota, which I think is really interesting and really nice. Yeah. That is actually. So there's an evolutionary point for these AMPs to actually be in our bodies. They also, of course, after testing that in the tube you could kill commensals cells and uh, pathogenic bacteria, they went into mouse model and they did both what is called the skin abscess and the thigh infection model. So one is like very superficial, another one is in, intra in the muscle. So they look at the different ways of delivering these uh, AMPs. And even though they did actually find a reduction in the amount of bacteria in these uh, models, they did not work as good as other AMPs that we already know and have been using for some time, which tells us that, yeah, there is a potential that these things could be potentially used, but not really right off the bat as we have synthesized them. So it could be maybe as a starting point to work more on them. I think it's also pretty cool that what they did was to look for synergy on biogeographical similarities. So that means they take AMPs from this Putative sequences that they are known to be in the same geographical location in the body for if they are in plasma or, or if they are working in the digestive system or something like that and then they put them together and they see if together they actually have a more potent effect on the growth of the bacteria and they did find some of this synergy which means that perhaps in our body these and P are actually working together to modulate our gut potentially. This is, of course, is speculation and it's just like based on yeah. the data that we have. Um, but all in all, I think it's just a very nice new approach to try to find something that as we were talking before, it could not just be predicted by sequence. It's something that we need to look from a different perspective. And in this case, it's looking at the properties of that particular sequence and not the yeah. sequence in and it of itself.
1: Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. And I think, I mean, like you said, I have my hesitations about the application of this like purely clinically, but that doesn't make it less interesting. And especially as you brought up, you know, like the why these exist in immunomodulation, you know, it's interesting to know and it is relevant for many diseases that we have what's affecting how our microbiotas are constructed, like what makes up our microbiotas, how much of what balances between and everything like that. I mean it's it would be great to get more information about mm-hmm. these kinds of things and it could still be clinically relevant, just mm-hmm. maybe not as straight up antibiotics mm-hmm. as our traditional term is. So it's still a super interesting paper. The I approach
0: mean, is really cool. And also, I yeah. mean, just as a biologist, and I really love you know, human biology as well, the idea that this is a way that we don't have to have more genes to get more yeah. functions, that means that we don't have to have a bigger uh, genome in our cells. We can kind Of reuse, multiple, we're maximizing, what yeah, we diversifying have. <laughs> the use of yeah. our proteins, right? So, we have some proteins that already do something, and then parts of them, smaller sections, can be doing something else mm. as well. And that means we don't really need to. So, I think uh, from an evolutionary point of view, it, it does make a lot of sense, yeah. So, untapping this, uh, you know, I used to when I was studying biology hear this uh, garbage DNA or like trash DNA that they were saying in our cells there's a lot of DNA we don't know really what they're doing and I always had that feeling like if it's there it's there for a reason we just don't know it yet but uh, I don't think we have just junk DNA in our cells definitely not
1: having worked in this field for a couple years though I feel like if anything there's more function to what we have than we know like you say like there are multiple functions of maybe the same genetic sequence that there's maybe a protein coded but there's also maybe a and rna interactions and like there, yeah. there's all these other kinds of things that can be involved as well and i mean we already know there are overlapping protein coding sometime you know that mm-hmm. like it's just such a complex system and it's just it always makes me like happy and overwhelmed at the same time to learn about more complexity <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it's I- so much and it's overwhelming but it's like but it's also really cool.
0: (laughs) I mean, nature has a beautiful way to work with complexity and use complexity, you know. it's It's just... It's beautiful. I really, really like it. So I think that's what uh, this paper kind of uh, attracted me to To it. Uh, I have to say that both papers got quite a lot of traction on the media. Yeah. So we will also link some of the popular news coverage of these two mm-hmm. articles if you are interested of reading a little bit more or maybe sharing with some friends that don't want yeah. to listen to to the whole podcast episode. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, they're not open access, though. So that's a uh, downside, yeah. but we can, yeah. we can, we'll give you what we can. <laughs>
0: yeah we link to the to the coverage outside of the journal yeah one day all journals will be open access that's that's where i think we're going
1: yes in my personal (laughs) opinion hopefully sooner rather than later (laughs) exactly
0: all right i think with this we are done for this last episode of 2021 crazy jenny we're done for this year
1: I'm still just getting used to writing 2021 as a date, so this is gonna be frustrating. <laughs> this is the worst year so far. I know. For me, and, uh, on writing dates, like 2021 just disappeared.
0: Now 2022 has a lot of twos in it, so. <laughs>
1: and I really don't want that year to come because I have to defend this year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that's it's gonna be a, an interesting year for sure. We have a lot of PhD students defending at the center as well, so yeah, a lot of a- uh, cool science being made public officially for the first time hopefully <laughs> yes for sure <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but we wish you a uh, very happy holidays wherever you are hope you can take some time off recharge and be ready for the next year
1: i uh, hope you can see some friends and family in a safe way at the end of this year it's important to keep in touch with everybody but as we all know do it safely <laughs> exactly Ava and I will also be taking a little break uh, since this episode came out a little bit later in December after World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. We are actually taking a break in January and we will see you again in February. Bye. Bye.
0: For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is uac_uu. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman,
1: and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.